0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, December 14th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was planning to do a show where we just quoted liberals who were sad about the demise of the weekly standard. But alas, from rumor of the weekly standards demise to, hey guys, clean out your offices by five... That escalated quickly, and now the standard is no more. There is a standard defense of the standard that goes like this. In an age of propaganda that's indifferent to truth, in an age where fealty to Trump is more valued on the right than fealty to fact, in an age when allowing an argument, any argument to breathe and develop is rare, the weekly standard had a valued place. That's all true, but I want to go beyond that. I want to offer more than a defense of the standard. I want to champion it. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I began to get into politics and my father, who is the consummate, you could even say platonic ideal of a social studies teacher said, well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to subscribe you to two magazines, one on the left, one on the right. They were the New Republic and the National Review. The editors of those magazines were Michael Kinsley and William F. Buckley, two giants. Now, eventually those publications morphed and changed and waned, it must be said, and replacing them were in the case of the new republic lots of different outlets chief among them slate and supplanting the national review as a forum for vital conservatism was the weekly standard the national review became eh, pretty strident in terms of race and the clintons so they lost me a little bit and the weekly standard had its own sins like cheerleading for the war in iraq but if you wanted the best case to be made in the best way On policies that you or I may have opposed, that was the place to go. It also had a bunch of writers that were as good as any magazine journalists out there. Let me name Andrew Ferguson and Matt Labash as two of them. I was once on a reporting trip for NPR to Fort Bragg, and Matt Labash was there reporting too, and I was silently kvelling. So think about this phenomenon. NPR reporter pinching himself because he's in the same room as a conservative scribe. That may not have happened before or since. That said, as I was uh, thinking about the Weekly Standard going out of business, I was struck by this thought. Listen, if you've spent 20 years cozying up to neocon power centers, and you can't get just one iron Rand-worshipping billionaire to throw you a lifeline in your moment of need, you have done something wrong. I mean, you guys were basically the house organ for Halliburton, and no one there can save you? But now I'm actually reading reports that it's not strictly a business decision, that the standards owners wanted to kill the magazine so they can harvest the list for a new magazine yet to be created that will probably be more pro-Trump. Yeah. John Podhore said literally that the standard had or could have had offers. Ownership refused to entertain the offers because they had this plan To take the subscribers and pivot them to a magazine more in line with their own thinking. It's also sad. But I think if we want to be strictly fair, the standard did have something to do with the rise of Trump in the same way that you can make the case that the Republican Party for years through dog whistles and willful blindness countenanced the Trump phenomenon. And then when Trump came along, he took advantage of the weakness of the party, and the standard perhaps can be tarred with the same brush. That is, of course, a premise that the weekly standard would dispute, and I'm sure they would dispute it with aplomb. They would say that they argued for what they believed, which is true, and as such, they contributed to the discourse, which is true, and as a principle, that sort of thing is of, or should be of, high value for a society. True, true, true. There are other values that the Weekly Standard embodied, good writing, and good faith arguments. And also there's this fact, this sad fact. There is no center anymore in that kind of writing. I was interviewing a professor who studies voting behavior in the alt-right. You'll hear his the interview in a couple days on the show. And I asked him why he wrote for the American Conservative. And he said, actually, I pitched a bunch of things to center-left outlets, and they seemed uninterested in my research. So I went to the American Conservative because it is the most center right thing out there. Well, what about center center? I said, well, there is no center center. I mean Time magazine is center center, but there's no real place that wants to go in depth on politics and policy. Now the weekly standard is far from center, but on the right side of the aisle, it was also far from the wackadoodle cult of personality that stands in for thought these days. The last thing I want to do is quote a writer, not a conservative writer. Tim Noah never wrote for the Weekly Standard, I don't think, doesn't share much of the Weekly Standard's worldview. In fact, Tim Noah was a constant presence in those issues of the New Republic that my father subscribed me to. But then he moved on to Slate. But he was tweeting about the value of good magazines in general, ones that embrace creativity and are fundamentally avenues for journalists. And he wrote, when opinion journals don't offer a kind of freedom to writers and editors, they risk evolving into rigid, Humorless agitprop vehicles, valued more for their usefulness to a cause than for their contributions to literature and political thought. Here, here, the Weekly Standard will be missed. On the show today, I spiel about a name, my name, the name of a senator, and a diet grapefruit beverage. But first, on the show today, what do the Bin Laden raid, machine learning, and Cassandras have in common? The answer. If you really thought about it and looked far ahead, is far sightedness. And author Steven Johnson cast his eyes upon that concept up next. We've been asked to think fast and think slow. We've been asked to come up with our blink reaction. So much of the reading and books about cognition, are about being in the moment and making the right choice. But what about the longer term? Instead of the sprint, what about the marathon? How do we actually come to good decisions that may not come to pass until many years or, in some cases, eons down the road? This is the subject of Farsighted, how we make the decisions that matter the most. Stephen Johnson is the author. He joins me again here on The Gist Thanks for coming in. Uh, It's always good to be here. So let us now approximate the conversation of clever men in clubs, uh, because this is how Charles Darwin decided what to gain and what he might give up by being wed. Yeah, this is actually, in a way, this little story, which, as you said,
1: is at the beginning of the book, near the beginning of the book, is one of the first things that got me into this topic. Because I'd written about Darwin's notebooks years ago in, in, in a book called Where Good Ideas Come From, and spent a lot of time talking about his notebooks in terms of the scientific content of the notebooks. But right, it turns out that right in the late 1830s, as Darwin is coming up with the most important scientific idea of the 19th century, the theory of evolution, in the middle of all of his scientific jottings, he briefly pauses for a page and and basically creates a pros and cons list. Trying to decide whether to get married or not, mm-hmm. and I, I've always thought it was kind of adorable and funny. And and the list is re- is really good. It hasn't it hasn't aged very well. Not that well. Some of the values are. Are, are not great, but but he puts a list of on, on one side, you know, against marrying. Like these are the things that he'd have to give up or things he's worried about. So when I mean, you have got cannot it in front of,
0: read in the evenings, less money for books, etc. So we know <laughs> where his priorities yeah. were.
1: And then and then in the pro marry side, he's got he's got some nice ones, you know, like children if it please God. Yes, but he also has some some line about um, better than a dog anyhow or something like <laughs> an, uh, an object to be adored, better than a dog anyway. <laughs> Um, uh, so it's, you know, whatever. It was a hundred and you know eighty years ago, whatever yeah. it was. but, um, but what i what I find striking about this is the one tool that most of us are taught for making a decision like that is the pros and cons list. like i right. and what I thought was striking about it is that that basically, if that's the one tool that most people know, that means that basically the kind of the science of complex decision making for most of us has been stagnant for like two hundred years, basically, right. right. And surely, there have been some advances in our understanding about how yeah. we how we make uh, these kinds a, of choices. An evolution
0: pace as Darwin, it were, if as it it were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what is a good way to make a decision, if not pros and cons? Maybe a third category. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, identify other options. So there's a study, a series of studies, actually, by this kind of management theory professor uh, named Paul Nutt, and, and he did these studies in the 80s that looked at hundreds and hundreds of you know business decisions that were made in a corporate environment and looked at the method or lack thereof of the decision-making process and then the ultimate results, like years later, how, how did people feel about these choices? And what he found was that it was very unusual for people to actually contemplate or try and discover another option, that most decisions were what he called whether or not decisions. Like, yeah. Should we do this or not? Right. And what he found was if you took the time to have that initial phase you're much more likely to feel that the decision was successful in the end. Um, even, <laughs> even if you go with the choice that you were originally looking at. Yeah. There are a couple of interesting, and this is all related to, and I'm sure you've covered this before, you know, in 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 the show. Um, there's just a, a, a massive series of findings in the behavioral social sciences over the last 20 years. Um, Scott Page has this formula that kind of is umbrella category for it, which is, a diversity trumps ability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, You get a, a bunch of high IQ people who are all the same in terms of their background and then a lower IQ group that are intellectually or culturally different in some way and then give them a creative problem to solve and the lower IQ group will outperform the higher IQ group because they have more angles on the problem in a sense. Those groups will be smarter. Like, yes. you know, that a, a bunch of folks who all look alike, who come from the same background or all went to the same schools are as a group going to make worse decisions.
0: So do you think a group of nine really smart people who went to Ivy League schools where maybe three are women and three are Jews and one's a Latina, is that the best kind of diversity? Or should we actually have a low IQ individual on the Supreme Court? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, is is
1: legal scholarship, does it tend to select for people who maybe then score on social IQ or emotional IQ or other-mindedness, empathy, all those really Mm -hmm. important properties of of human intelligence, when they look at groups, one one of the things they do a lot of of the science is built around mock juries, right? That's one place where you can have a group come together with different composition, give give different groups the exact same facts. They got smarter in terms of their outcomes. They also got less certain that they were right. Yeah. So the the the, kind of the the introduction of kind of different points of view led people to the right answer, but it actually increased their levels of uncertainty. And on some level, that sounds paradoxical, but in a lot of ways, a lot of the kind of techniques that I talk about in, in Farsighted are in some ways about confronting uncertainty.
0: There is a concept in the book that I've heard before that I've tried to do, and I find it stymieing. I find it anxiety producing, which is the premortal. Uh, yeah. 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 Because so the post mortem is someone died why did he die the pre mortem is I'm going to tell you this will fail give me the reasons why that might fail and to me it just goes out of control <laughs> there are so many reasons and oh, yeah. what am I supposed to do with that yeah well yeah so
1: the whole orientation of the book is to get people to slow down and to deliberate more and to not just trust their instincts and to you know divide the decision making process into phases and, and you know add yes. to the pros and cons list. But I, I didn't really address people who have the opposite problem. The world is filled with people with the opposite problem, which is they over-deliberate or yes. they, they're constantly running pre-mortems yeah. in their heads. I actually I, – uh, I dedicated the book to my dad <laughs> and I have this subtle like kind of tweak uh, in it where uh, I think in the acknowledgments I'm like, you know, from – this book is for my father, master of the pre-mortem, because basically every important decision I've ever had in my life, like my dad calls me up and he's like, "This is going to end very poorly,
0: Steve." Oh wow! <laughs> so is he yeah. ever right? Is he a resource? It's nice to have a Cassandra on hand. No, no, no. It really and is it's nice to have. It is. Yeah. It
1: hugely and and you know I talk a little bit in the book about this when we had this decision about moving to California as a family, and my dad did. I was really gung-ho about it and I thought my dad was going to be really gung-ho about it and he kind of pointed out some things that absolutely ended up being true and accurate. Um I still think it was the right thing to do but yeah. but he his that that um premortem gave me a, a, an
0: angle on the problem that I didn't have yeah. before. Yeah. That would be maybe a good pair of parents, one Pangloss, one Cassandra. Right. If they if they aren't the I told you so types. Yeah. Then you could yeah, maybe yeah. make a decision. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so I want to talk at length about some reporting or what you've uncovered about the process of killing Osama bin Laden because I compare that deliberation and I use that word deliberately with what I perceive to be the lack of rigor in uh, the, the Oval Office and decision making. So the story is about the bravery and some intel that went into SEAL Team 6 discovering that OBL was where he was. But there's so much more to that. So I want to ask you about that, but just lay out what um, the United States government went through before they decided to pull the trigger on the raid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I try. <laughs> By the way, I, I kept it very um, implicit, the comparison to the current administration sure. in the book. I yeah. think you can't read it and not think, could this have happened uh, under the current administration's watch? So this, as you say understandably, we tend to celebrate the actual military interventions of these sorts of things, the the raid in this case. But there is this other thing that makes all that possible. It was really a two-part decision. We've noticed that there's mysteri- this mysterious character in this mysterious compound um, outside of Abbottabad. And could this possibly be Osama bin Laden? And by the way, initially, the overwhelming consensus was this wasn't Bin Laden. They yeah. thought he was in a cave somewhere. Yeah, and, it didn't and they, make sense. They didn't think he was near be so like this close. big military yeah. school and all this stuff. And then once they began to think that maybe they had their guy, the question was, what What should we do? And they had a kind of open mapping kind of phase where they were trying to come up with as many ways as they could of figuring out who this mysterious character was. And they were like, throw out Every crazy idea you can, you know, we went, nothing is so, and some of them were insane. Like they were like, let's get big speakers and say that we are Allah (laughs) and please come out of your houses. You know, they were like, what? That's never going to work. But they were, you know, throwing them around. And then they also, at several points, they were like, okay, we, we think we're beginning to be confident that this is bin Laden. I task you all to come up with counter arguments. Why? Despite all this evidence, this is not bin Laden.
0: And this McRaven. McRaven the show and and Panetta yeah uh, you know now this is what I want to know to compliment civilian leadership they wanted it they yeah. valued it they didn't pressure him and say you're dithering you know you shit or got off the pot they they wanted him to go through the whole process and that's important and
1: there's a lot of and this is there's a kind of an Amazon related version This is a lot of polling of certainty levels that happened throughout it. like okay where where are we in terms of our certainty and you know go around the room and it's like I'm thirty percent I'm sixty percent I'm whatever and and that's another interesting angle, like I guess Jeff Bezos has this like business philosophy at Amazon, yeah. which is the 70 percent rule, which is like, get to 70 percent confidence or certainty, and then pull the trigger. Don't wait until you get all the way to 100. Right You know, this is one of these cases where um, machine learning is going to be really interesting because one place where computers may be be able to augment our decision making because humans do probability really poorly, right? I mean, this is a yeah thinking fast and slow idea. Uh, Apparently, Amos Tversky had had a line that he would say sometimes, which is like, (laughs) for human beings, they have three levels of probability. It's going to happen, it's not going to happen, and maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of all the slots we have. Whereas, you know, machines are really good at saying like, well, I think there's a difference here between 20% and 35%, and they can kind of keep that math in their heads, you know? And so one thing we may be headed towards is situations decisions where the cognitive diversity in the room includes silicon diversity the silicon intelligence right and so it's like you know an interesting mix of people from different professions and different backgrounds and you know watson yeah (laughs) and the 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 ai gives us a different kind of reading and there's some interesting studies that have looked at how this might work in for instance in um bail bond decisions, right? So, you know, you're trying to decide should you release this person on bail and how much money should it just be freely released or should you set a million dollar bail, whatever. And there's some interesting studies that show that algorithms can be biased and, you know, uh, yeah. inaccurate and all, yeah. all that. but there's also some other int- new stuff that involves real true machine learning that suggests that the algorithms can actually be less biased than than judges. And what I don't think you want to be in a situation where you're just like, oh, here's this important kind of legal decision. Let's just hand it over to the machine. But you could imagine a kind of duet between the judge and the AI. And the judge comes up with a conclusion based on his or her assessment of the evidence and predictions about future events. And the machine spits out its recommendation. And if they're in sync, great. If they're not, the human being has to rethink and recalibrate and think, well, why did the machine come to that conclusion that I didn't come to? Um, And that would, again, lead to maybe less certainty, but probably
0: better outcomes. The thing that gives me pause in all of this, uh, I buy your methods, your mapping out of the methods for mapping out and coming to better decisions. I see no evidence that we're actually progressing, just the average person or us living in a democracy, that we're electing officials who are better at this, that we're making better group decisions, where I see the better decisions and the better processes playing out are at the elite level. So I think that Amazon is probably better at it than the mom and pop shops. And it just leads me to wonder or worry that the only way to have actual accomplishment in this area is to go back to Darwin, this Darwinistic thing of the elite's will have better decision-making processes. They'll kind of stamp out the regular people who are just going by their gut or whatever. It's just going to create a bigger chasm between the people who are good at this decision-making and the people who aren't. I don't see much hope for most people, especially living in a democracy. Well, let's just end there. I think that's yeah. it. Like, no, no. Here,
1: here, well, here's here's the bottom. I'm, I'm not sure if I completely agree with that dire an assessment of it, but it does take me to something that, Really, the book ends on, and that was something I became increasingly convinced of um, as I was researching and writing it, which is I think that we should teach this stuff. Like, does it complex decision making should be a required class in like every high school in the country? Now that there is stuff to teach, right? There's a whole, there's plenty, there's plenty of material to teach. And if you think about all the things you're taught in high school, that you, the second the course is over, you never think about again, right? It's just this exercise of. proving that you can pass a test and then you never use in any capacity whatsoever. And it's not like I just want people to have vocational educations, right? I mean, I, th- I think mm-hmm. intellectual curiosity and, and serendipity yeah. is a big part yeah. of it. But of course, on decision-making, just think about the fields you would cover in a course on something like you would cover psychology, you would yeah. cover
0: behavioral economics, you would oh, cover brain But No matter what field people go into, they got to decide to get married or move or things even if, like that. Even if they Half don't go kids. into a field. That's you right. Know?
1: You know? And so I think it seems to me that, that that should be the core. And then if somebody wants to do an elective in algebra well then great they can go into an elective in algebra or renaissance poetry whatever it is but that skills like decision making should be the basis of what a 16 year old is being taught because their brains are ready for that kind of uh they're having to make decisions as a 16 year old anyway and they're soon going to have to make even bigger ones as they become an adult so i i'm actually one of my little side projects is thinking about how you would
0: Teach a course like that and what it would look like, particularly targeted at that kind of audience. Steven Johnson is the author of Farsighted How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. Thanks a lot.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back.
0: And now the spiel. What is in a name, they ask? Well, who's the they? See, we don't know. They know not to give their names. Names are important, as John Proctor said in *The Crucible* when he was asked, "Why don't you just sign your name on your admission to cavorting with the devil?" He said, and here's this is how it's written in the script: Proctor, with a cry of his whole soul, "Because it is my name, because I cannot have an, <clears throat> because it is my name, because I cannot have another in my life, because I lie and sign myself to lies." How may I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. If you want to hear Daniel Day-Lewis performing that quote in an overwrought manner, here you go. Because it is my name! Because I cannot have another in my life! Because I lie and sign myself to lies! Because I
1: am not worth the. A- on the feet of them you have hanged.
0: I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. Now, Daniel Day Lewis knows of names. I mean, imagine him, perhaps the greatest actor and 129th greatest cobbler of our age, going by Danny Lewis or Daniel Day. It's unimaginable. Now, the other day, Lewis, (laughs) see, see, the other day, there was an article in the New York Times and it mentioned me. Sort of, because in online editions it did not mention me. I shall quote a correction that ran because of an editing error. An earlier version of this article misspelled the surname of the host of the Gist, a Slate podcast. He is Mike Pesca, not Fresca. Now, I want—I don't want to embarrass the author of this article by saying her name, but Jacqueline Pizer claimed that she wrote Pesca when she handed in her copy, but somewhere along the line. Diet Grapefruit Soda got opened up, and the Times dubbed me Fresca. Was this the name I was taunted with on all those schoolyards of Oceanside School Number no. 5 between the ages of 6 and 11? It was. Did it hurt me? I thought not. But perhaps what did hurt me was the idea that Brian LaPicciola, who showed no care or aptitude for book learning and often told us so, managed to get a plum role in media editing the New York Times and fucking with his old kill-the-carrier nemesis, me. Okay, mistakes will be made. It's all Diet Grapefruit Soda under the bridge. But I do know when you hear a name mispronounced or a word dispronounced, it's slightly jarring. But I've been analyzing this tendency to be jarred in myself, and I think names are different from words. Uh, let Let me lay out my work. It's a source of fascination. I've been collecting instances of podcasts where normally astute people say words in weird ways. It's an insight into something. What? I'll tell you in a minute. First, some examples. No antecedents in American history? You know, a whole archipelago of institutions. I don't know. Detritus or tar or something. And Okay, that was the weeds trying to say antecedent, Jonah Goldberg on the Axe Files, struggling with archipelago and Emily Bazelon, who is as brilliant as they come botching detritus. I have to admit, I used to say detritus, and I think I know why. It's because it's a word that I read about a hundred times more often than I said or heard said. See, these are all smart people. That's not a coincidence. They read a lot. Sometimes you don't know how detritus is going to be said out loud. Maybe Jonah Goldberg just stumbled over archipelago. I mean, let's say you're a bright, bright guy, but your expertise is Wisconsin. How would you know if you're, say, Dan Kaufman... The ins and outs of fancy French words. The denouement of eight years of almost unbroken Republican control in Wisconsin. And after having climaxed with that one, let us now go to Ben Shapiro, serving as our denouement. With this, his interpretation of the rigid class system of India. Sort of aristocratic caste at the top. Of- I looked it up. That's not an acceptable pronunciation. Look, you could say lots of people mispronounce words. It's a case of thousands. And I could say that my attitude towards a mispronounced word is more amusement, somewhat interested. And I really don't find fault. But when it comes to names, I tend to think mispronunciations mark you as inexpert. I think it might be unfair. I was listening to the Damage Control podcast, it's a ringer podcast. They were opining about Amazon's HQ2 announcement in uh, Northern Virginia and New York. You know what I think about it. I disagreed with their take. I thought they had a somewhat uninformed opposition. But I was powerfully distracted by this. Like
1: the first wave of news reports about... Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, Mm -hmm. and Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, working together, Amazon do what it wants, than de Blasio would have if it were
0: a New York City matter. Mm -hmm. Right. De Blasio. How can I listen to these guys talking about de Blasio? But then, if I must blow the whistle on myself, if you were to say that to me about me from how I was saying Sherrod Brown the other day, you'd have been right. Because I was saying Sherrod Brown. It was useful. I could make all the good Sherrod puns. Spare the Sherrod, spoil the child. But the man's name is Sherrod Brown. It is the Sherrod economy after all. I guess I could have made puns either way. But I, I do think my critique of Sherrod Brown held water if my pronunciation of Sherrod Brown seemed to strain your ears. I know, I know. I'm just bad at saying some words, especially words that seem unusual when I write them down. I ask forgiveness. I don't always extend the generosity to others. I remember one time I worked for NPR and I had a story spiked for a day and I had to come in and track again because I I think I said Claude Debussy instead of Debussy or maybe the other way around. On principle, I've refused to learn how to pronounce that man's name. And the weird thing is, I wasn't even talking about the composer. I was talking about the Knicks power forward, Dave DeButcher. I guess when it comes to proper names, I am, in fact, DeButcher, serving up a prime cut of mispronunciation and washing it down with a glass of Fresca. And that's it for today's show. Just producers Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader may have been called Schroeder and Benny May on occasion. And if they were in South Dakota, Pierre would surely be called Pierre Bename. T.J. Raphael, Slate's senior producer, had the foresight not to require us to pronounce her first and middle name every time we say her name. For the record, T.J. stands for Theanthropophysy Jane. Hey, we got a newsletter. Sign up for it. It comes out Saturday. If you sign up after Saturday, you got to wait a week. So sign up for it today. Slate.com slash news, Among other things... Every Saturday, I will answer the trivia question that I give on the show the day or week before. Here is this week's question. In Stephen Johnson's previous books, How We Got To Now, Six Innovations That Made The World, he mentions that as far as we could tell, the first ever use of flash photography was where? Where was flash photography first used? The gist, you know, with the clever use of some sand and land bridges, this archipelago can become an isthmus oomper de and thanks for listening.
1: You're gonna take off on a light sugar-free flight. Take off, take off. Take off with the fresh taste of fresh sky. Take off, take off, take off. Flight in the clear with a fresh new taste. Makes you feel like you're blind with the wind in your face. Take off with the light clean, fresh new taste. The fresh new taste the fresh